The e-commerce fuel podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the car I use and love because it eliminates frustrating technical and server problems. Like a magenta logging issue I had before we switched over that brought our store to a crawl and required the better part of a day to troubleshoot. What's the only thing better than eliminating tech headaches? Making more money. And Shopify can help there too. We experienced a whopping 41% increase in conversion after moving our store to Shopify from Magento. So quit fighting with servers and make more money. You can learn how at shopify.com. Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, your headquarters for building a six figure plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today on the show, I have a special guest, Matt Rutledge, the founder of Woot.com and more recently, meh.com. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be familiar with Woot. Woot is, is kind of the original daily deal. Well, not kind of. It is the original daily deal site. Matt founded it back in the mid-2000s and became really successful based, one, on the model, but two, on the very funny, cheeky, entertaining copy that really it became well-known for. Matt ultimately sold Woot to Amazon for $110 million and worked with Amazon for a couple of years, but most recently left to start meh. Dot com, which is, by his own admission, very similar to Woot. He saw what happened to Woot after the sale. It got cluttered with a lot of ancillary deals and categories, and it just wasn't quite as, it didn't really stay true to the original model of just a single straightforward daily deal. Starting it in, you know, more recently, meh.com. I think they, they kickstarted it last year, and it's uh, it's a little bit under a year old. We're going to talk about that. We talk about some of his comedic influences, chatting about the sales process to Amazon, uh, and also meh, of course. We talk about meh.com. I keep pronouncing it wrong. you got to pronounce it right with some, some indifference. <laughs> and finally, Matt's take on retailers today about why Frankly, he doesn't really respect a lot of retailers out there. Looks at them, looks at a lot of them as middlemen, and what he thinks the future holds. If if um, if you're not adding a lot of value, as either adding a lot of really tangible value in some kind of service capacity or creating your own product, so we get into that as well. So enough of me talking. Let's go ahead and get into today's discussion with Matt Rutledge from Meh.com. Matt, humor has been such an enormous part of your success and Woot's success and meh.com's success, as we'll talk about. And so at the top, just wanted to ask you a few completely non-e-commerce related questions to kind of dive into that background. So favorite comedian or biggest comedic influence, who would that be? Uh, Interesting. So, um, you know, I'm pretty out of touch, you know, having been an entrepreneur and and sort of just focused in on on my business for the past, I don't know, 20 years. But uh, so I would say sort of, you know, George Carlin, you know, kind of that, that kind of sarcastic style. Louis C.K. sort of has the same, you know, sarcasm and realism and, and let's, uh, let's lay it straight. So those are, are kind of, uh, that's more stylistically what I go for in comedy, I would say. And what about the most overrated comedian or talk show host or not even straight up comedian, but anyone whose humor you just can't stand? You know, I, I stay pretty open-minded on humor. So you know, there might be some kind of grading, you know, delivery that I, that I might not like, but I don't tend to criticize uh, humor. Maybe, I don't know, just I uh, don't have a, a least favorite comedian, I would say. Well, fair enough. What about the best practical joke you've ever played on someone? Are you much of a prankster? That's funny. So it's sort of, you know, entwined with my company endeavors. We had a fellow who returned a product and I forget the exact uh, reason that they sort of 
rubbed us the wrong way, but, you know, derided us for having, you know, ever, ever thought of shipping him a, uh, I think this was a robo sapien robot, you know, that was not entirely operational or he thought was not operational and, uh, some series of events where we just sort of got rubbed the wrong way. And we proceeded to set him out replacements and we actually had well, a really long story, but we had a lot of these in stock and some of them were, were kind of damaged boxes, but the, the units inside were good. So we had a lot of stock we couldn't sell in a, in a normal way. So we shipped him via a different carrier, you know, FedEx, I think DHL was, you know, in play, UPS, Postal Service. Every day, uh, a different RoboSapien would arrive to his house. <laughs> and we thought of it, you know, torture by RoboSapien. And uh, it was really, really funny around the office. And we just imagined in our heads, you know, how hilarious every day, like this knock on the door and here's this other RoboSapien. And like, you know, this is what the guy wanted. And, you know, how could we not come through for him? And now we're coming through in such a way that, you know, maybe he would be annoyed by what turned into be, you know, probably a thousand dollars or more of these RoboSapiens, but it was worth the joke. And, and then we were about, we were going to do this for 30 days. And I think maybe 20 days in, I got a call or I got a note internally from our customer service. And apparently this was a teenager we didn't know. And we were sending him to the, to his house and his mom called. <laughs> so we were like, Oh shit, we, uh, we can't, uh, you know, we felt horrible. Like, you know, she's like, please stop sending, you know, Robo Sapiens <laughs> to us. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, that was, a a bit of a, a practical joke that went maybe a little, little bad for us. Oh, that's great. You can imagine maybe an awkward conversation the mom had with the teenager. Are you stealing credit cards? You know, keep coming and coming and coming. <laughs> That's yeah, great. who knows? But once the once the mom called us, was like, okay, this 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 feels wrong. We can, we shouldn't have done it. It was much better thinking there was some thirty year old that was annoyed with us. <laughs> oh, I love it. And the last one before we get quasi serious, especially coming off April Fool's Day here, relatively recently, a best practical joke you've ever had played on you. Oh, you know, uh, our employees, my employees at Woot and and here at Mad Mediocre are always in for various. In fact, just today, the you know bottom of my mouse is taped up and it's some uh, Nicolas Cage picture. And I'm like, you know, why isn't my mouse working in it? Oh, it's Nicolas Cage, of course, you know. <laughs> but so every couple weeks or so, uh, the last one, but the recent ones come to mind. So my office still has cardboard all around it. I had cardboard versions of everything in my office was replaced with cardboard versions. So table, chairs, computer, phone. Uh, in fact, so I, I still have all my pictures have cardboard over the top of them with renditions. So, you know, maybe some of the common variety, but I, you know, we do a lot of them around here, so they, they all run together. Yeah. I should ask you, was the best practical joke you've ever played on you this week is probably more fitting. Yeah, maybe, maybe more appropriate. <laughs> right. <laughs> now for listeners who maybe haven't, you know, maybe been living under a rock for the last few years, maybe really young for whatever reason, might not know the, the story. What's the quick and dirty story of how uh, your original venture Woot got off the ground? Yeah. Okay. Right. So try to keep it quick here. So this is 10 years ago. In fact, both Woot, the original venture that people know about that has some fame about and Meh are basically 10 years apart from each other. And what they don't know is the preceding company, Synapse Micro, its name is irrelevant, computer parts distributor, preceded Woot by 10 years as well. And Woot evolved from a distributor company then that I'd started in the 90s that was basically a non-internet company. You know, this was get on the phone and sell computer parts to stores both locally in the Dallas area and then nationwide as we started to pick up more and more sort of closeouts from manufacturers. 
So we persisted in that model for a lot longer than our peers. And then before Woot was launched, our customer base was down to the big box retailers, the, the CompUSAs and Computer Cities and Circuit Cities and all these places that are now out of business themselves, but basically Best Buy type stores, huge multi-location, you know, you know, sometimes hundreds of location stores that would buy big batches of inventory to move through. And when we got stuck with an item, when we had something that those customers didn't want uh, because that customer base had become so focused in, in only a few accounts, we realized that we were upside down or, or stuck with a product more quickly than we had in the past. And so we looked for outlets to blow that product out as quickly as we could because it was controversial that we needed to do that. So Woot was actually a solution for the wholesale company's problem of making mistakes and having you know run out and bought a bunch of, uh, you know, either computer-related or consumer electronics-related uh, items that we were sort of stuck with. And so it wasn't really designed as a let's have fun on the Internet and be snarky and, and invent this daily deal model, uh, which we did, but we, we didn't invent those things for the glory of inventing them. We invented them to solve the very real problems of our business, and they achieved that. And then I think what leaked through and maybe added to people's enjoyment, that was more our personality coming through. And the writing on Woot was fantastic. It's so entertaining to read and a huge part of why it was successful. Did you do all that writing at the beginning? Was that your personality and your hand coming through? Did you have a team that was helping you out with that? So as incubated inside our, our wholesale company, there were a few of us that were tasked with putting those sales together. And early on, it was, you know, so I can take some credit for some writing, but we were only changing a spec here or there or adding some personality and flair in a very limited way to what was otherwise a, a similar sales description as you would see on another store. And while I was writing those, they certainly weren't a great effort. I can't pat myself on the back too much. They, they were occasionally funny, but they led people to look for those as Easter eggs. And then that led to us hiring legitimate, you know, good writers that came in after and sort of really took that to a new level that you're probably referencing where the entire write-up is a story or a joke or, you know, any number of directions. Now, Amazon has a history, as you know, of being fairly notoriously aggressive with their acquisitions. Uh, for example, with Zappos, they undercut them on, on shoe sales for a long time to really try to make profitability outside of an acquisition unfeasible with diapers.com. They had kind of had some similar aggressive tactics. You obviously were purchased by Amazon. Were you open to a sale from the get-go? Was it something where it was they really tried to play hardball? Was it more of a soft approach? And how did you decide to ultimately sell to them? That's a tough decision for any entrepreneur, especially, you know, you've got so much invested in the company. How did that transpire? Yeah, interesting. I mean, when you've gone through a large acquisition, you become rather enthralled with the proceedings. And first off, I would say, yes, Amazon is aggressive. But if you found them not to be aggressive, I think you'd be really confusing and it would appear to be you know, somewhat of a lack of interest. And so I find it fairly transparent what's out there. I, I think there's a large amount of credibility in them trying to duplicate and compete with efforts that they may be interested in acquiring to inform themselves of what's the market size of this? How is it run? How do they think about it? How are they thinking about it differently than we are? Are there capabilities they have that we don't have? I imagine that in each of these acquisitions at Quidzy, the diapers.com group, that at Zappos, you know, when they're, you know, reported in the media as having ruthlessly competed, I don't think that's overly aggressive at all. I think that's appropriate. And so in a similar vein with Woot, I appreciated, certainly as an entrepreneur, 
having built a business, essentially trying to to outthink and and compete in an e-commerce space that they were the big, you know, giant in. I certainly appreciated learning that they were they had tried to emulate the model and tried to to effectively compete uh, internally at Amazon with us. That gave me an appreciation and it made it a little more compatible. Certainly if they were then having tried that, still interested in an acquisition, that meant they saw value. That meant freedom and potential, you know, enjoyment from my staff of being valued as as an acquisition. And so that's what you're looking for if you're going to be acquired. And certainly Amazon from a consumer model is very popular and not a controversial acquirer. So the other thing is that there were a lot of conversations and, and certainly I didn't just run readily to the first offer. There was actually a preceding investment from Amazon in 2006, so really just a couple of years after Woot uh, had launched its site, you know, there was already interest and in, in dialogue and investment from Amazon. And then many years after that, that dialogue continued. And so it's a long drawn out process in which you're going to be communicating and learning so much. And there's, there's a lot of communication both ways where both parties are going to be very informed by really probably a year or more. I mean, in our case, four years of dialogue but even in a, in a quicker acquisition, you're going to have a lot of time for the reality to set in. And, you know, there's not any tricks to it. There's really not an approach to it that you would want to know from the outset. You're going to be, if you're in that situation, you know why, and you know your leverage, and you know your lack of leverage, and you know your goals. You probably didn't build a business because you had dollar signs in your eyes. You probably built a business because you had ideals and a better way to do something that you felt strongly about, and you made a lot of decisions that were not economically driven to get there and they felt rewarding. And so you certainly would not want to just exchange those idealistic, you know, decisions you made for a dollar amount without considering it over some time and very thoughtfully, you know, but again, if you're thinking, I want to build a business so that I can sell it to Amazon, it's really easy for me to just tell you, you aren't going to get there. So if you're already thinking like that's your goal, you aren't going to get there. You're going to get there if you build a business that people value. And that is completely opposite from trying to build a business with dollar signs in your eyes. You sold, went to work with Amazon for a couple of years, and then you left to start Meh.com. Uh, great domain name. <laughs> what is Meh.com? How did you go up with the name and why did you start it? Yeah. So first off, it's, it's Meh. So you really have to get the, you know intonation. It's, oh, a, it's sorry, more of an expression. You know, no, you can say it any way you want. I'm just joking. Yeah. But um, in the same way as, as Woot was a, an expression or, a, you know, not necessarily a word, particularly in 2004, you know, but more of an expression of excitement and hooray and, and hey, look what I found. Meh is the opposite and sort of like I have complete indifference about what I found and I will express it in this non-word way. <laughs> And uh, maybe shrug my shoulders, you know. And so there's a lot of fun reasons why we picked that. First off, the parent company and actually the coming out of the acquisition and learning kind of from within Amazon, you know, how retail is viewed and what type of individual is rising up through the ranks of Amazon. And having been a wholesaler myself for 10 years prior to, to Woot, so really, you know, a fairly tenured, you know, kind of industry veteran you get kind of a, um, all right, a lot of this is not as consumer friendly as and, and exciting, you know, when you, once you see how the sausage is made, you know, there's a little less excitement about being a retailer. And in fact, in my case, there's a lot of disdain for retail decision making and the retail industry at large. 
which may be why I do so few of these uh, sort of podcasts. <laughs> but um, Matt, if you don't mind, you know, know, what is it? Just really quickly, that's what is it that you really dislike about the retail industry that you alluded to? There are well, number one, if you consider retail in a generic sense, retail is by definition a middleman. And so there's very few people that if you just boil it down and say, hey, do you like middlemen? Do you like somebody in between you and the guy that you might buy the product from for cheaper? Universally, everybody will agree they don't. So then you're saying, okay, when is a middleman acceptable? Well, a middleman is acceptable when they're adding value. Well, if you're someplace in in Texas, as I am, and I need a new set of headphones, and then potentially a value proposition to me is that I might be able to go to a store or use you know, if Amazon has a quick delivery, whatever, get a headphone, you know, to me, and that may add value that I would find better than even if I know the manufacturer of this headphone, they don't have one here for me right now. And so that's value. And so that's fair middleman value. They might also be able to provide reviews. They might be able to provide selection uh, for me to pick from. Maybe I can try them before I buy them. You know, any number of ways that retail can add value and be then an acceptable middleman. But I still continue with the premise that I'm very skeptical in that value. And once you get rolling and have momentum in providing, you know, some value, which I would say is usually not enough, some value is provided by you as a a retailer middleman to consumers. You inevitably expand your pricing to take as much advantage of that value as you can, which means you're no longer providing, you know, a fair exchange for that value. And in my mind, you're just essentially a middleman again that is, you know, exchanging and optimizing your margin for the sake of my potential as a consumer now, you know, my potential cost on that product. And so in my mind, this is probably controversial to some people, but in my mind, retail becomes inherently evil as a position of power because you're sort of establishing these conditions in which you may or may not have competition or you may or may not have a captive audience and you wish to expand your margin to their detriment. So do you see a future then where Amazon's become such a trusted player and not always a low-cost provider, but pretty darn close? Do you see a future where Amazon takes kind of the, I mean, they're already they're headed in that direction anyway, but they're the only guys pretty much in town that sells existing goods. And then everything else is going to be direct manufacturer, the original maker, value adder of the good to consumer. And you have a huge hollowing out of independent merchants. Well, there are other value points that can be legitimately brought to the table. So if you are offering services that a manufacturer does not offer, obviously installation would be a great one but even training or potentially value add in in any number of ways, expertise driven. I think that those retail slash service organizations have every reason to exist. I think if your job is to convey goods in aggregate and, and offer selection from manufacturers and you think that you're going to provide margin lift that investors and yourself as a business owner are going to appreciate, then yeah, I think you have a very tough road ahead of you. I, I don't think there's there's any, number one, it's, it's almost impossible to compete and have any leverage with a manufacturer or a logistics operation that's going to get you anywhere, anywhere close to what Amazon or Walmart on the online side can offer or on the brick and mortar side can offer. So I think that conventional retail where you're not offering any differentiation in product or any differentiation in service has, yeah, has no reason to exist. They just don't need that many of them to exist before they're successfully competing and efficient. 
I got us off on a rabbit trail. I apologize from meh.com, but bring us back to the main point of discussion here. So meh, you launched it, or meh, excuse me, I had to work on that. It's very similar to Woot in the sense that, uh, you know, even in the Kickstarter campaign that you did, you, you pretty much said, you know, we created Woot, it was wonderful, we sold it, it pretty much got completely overrun with all of this unessential stuff and what made it wonderful died away. And so we're, we're relaunching it, so to speak. It's great. I've, I've loved the, the humor, the videos you guys do with the trolls are really entertaining. So much is similar, but are there some things different? What's different from meh.com versus Woot in terms of maybe things you're trying out, experimentation, uh, social aspects, any big differentiators, even though they're fairly similar? Yeah, what's funny, so this is an experiment. The parent company is Mediocre Corp. And so the, the company that, <laughs> that I uh, work for, that we all work for, is a mediocre corporation, which is funny to have on a business card because <laughs> then people ask, well, where do you work? And then, well, that's it. That's so awesome. we tend to, you know, particularly coming out of a company called Woot, which you sort of really have to kind of, you know, you can't just say, well, I work at Woot, you know, so that's my day job. You know, <laughs> you <laughs> got to be enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, maybe you do that for eight, 10 years and you get a little tired of it. And so there's a, an enjoyment on the downplaying aspect and lack of hype. And really Woot, uh, the brand we built was originally a lack of hype, a complete lack of hype and, and a lot of transparency. And so in some ways, you know, there's a number of perspectives to look at this from. One is our enjoyment, like I just said, but the other is, is that Woot was not properly named for its, you know, sort of connotation as we did marketing and as we had a product or brand voice, I guess you'd call it. We weren't about hype. And so I think that having, you know, meh.com is a great, you know, way. It, there's a curiosity behind that. It's still an internet term in, in large degree. And so it's, you know, has a geek element to it that we enjoy, but it also sets the bar low and it implies a, a company that, that is to be explored. Why would a company pick either, either mediocre for that matter or meh as their name? I must figure out more because they're really stupid or really smart. And so, we, uh, you know, I don't know where we fall in that category, but uh, we enjoy that it sets up that condition that you want to explore. And maybe you'll find it sticky, you know, as you explore it. No, it's great. It's fantastic. If you loved Woot, check out meh.com. That's M-E-H.com. And if you have no idea what Woot is, and, and that means you're probably under 17 years of age, but uh, if you don't, it's, it's a, a very similar to, to the classic, of course, Woot that, uh, that Matt built up and created the space. I love how you, in your Kickstarter video, you say what douchey business guys would call the daily deal space. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the Kickstarter video was fantastic. Yep. Last, last question for you, Matt. You, know, you talked about how so many e-commerce companies, especially looking forward, it's going to be really hard to compete if you're just, if you're just a middleman, if you're not having a huge value add. So looking out on the, the e-commerce landscape, today with everything that's going with Amazon and so many changes. Is there anyone that you look at as a real pioneer in the e-commerce world or someone who's doing work in the e-commerce space that you really respect? Well, the way I view the landscape is there, everybody's located on the same corner in an intersection in a town. And so there's no geographic separation, obviously, on the internet. And so it's not about location. Everybody's at the same location and you can price shop and compare to everybody. And so I think that, you know, certainly a company that doesn't realize that, you know, they need to have a, an exclusive opportunity. And, and I mean exclusive in either offering that I can't get somewhere at all, or at least a limited time deal or a price that appeals to me that's exclusive. If you don't recognize that and you're just offering something that I can literally go out and find cheaper at the same corner, then as an intelligent shopper, I cannot respect your business. There are plenty of businesses that are catering to the non-intelligent shopper and there's no reason to name them, but very simply, they're not known for having good prices. And I just think like there's very little value at it. And, and really even I'll, I'll go a bit further, like 
like Zappos is a respected company that offers value in, in service and handholding and has a respect level of, of how they treat their customer and yet doesn't have the right kind of pricing conditions where they're going to lead the way in price. I can find every single shoe on Zappos, I would imagine being able to find cheaper. It's a, it's a question of, do I want that experience? So there's still some time when price is not the only thing to look at, but it's, but it's hard when you're on the same corner with, with an expectation that, hey, I just want that product. It's hard to get conditions such that I find innovative stores attempting other ways to do that. I mean, there's, there's simply, as a consumer, if I want some shoes, and this is, I'm using the exception to the rule really with Zappos, but if I want shoes, I either want the shoes as cheap as I can get them, or I want this hand-holding experience that a Zappos-like company might offer me, and I don't need any other gimmick or innovation. I really don't. I just, I just need some shoes. And so I don't find myself looking around with wide eyes and smiles on my face when I see new e-commerce that isn't differentiating on product supply. Now, on brand and product supply and verticals, on, on things that are subscription model that are curated. I mean, there's a number of companies we're all aware of that do really good work in exploring those territories. A lot of the companies I respect most are going to be manufacturers that are also doing retail. I mean, you know, the largest would be Apple, still doing conventional retail, but predominantly most people like to buy Apple through the Apple store. And so I think that that's obviously you're not just going to go start Apple, but, you know, starting a, um, a clothing firm or a, some sort of a full vertical where you own the, the sourcing and branding. I think that's the way to go these days. I think that's where the opportunity is. I think the subscription type models where you're curating and sending somebody something new every month, that's really pretty interesting and novel. It gives you some leverage that you can use in a different way with a manufacturer and, and private label some things. But yeah, just regular conventional e-commerce, I find really dull and miserable and, and, and nothing on the landscape and an aggregator of, of a selection store is, is interesting at all right now. Matt, love what you've done with, with Meh and uh, watch, looking forward to watching it grow and seeing what you do with Mediocre as well. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been, been a privilege and it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.